This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, one of the great privileges of my life has been the opportunity over the past several years to work closely with the text of 2 Samuel in preparation for a lengthy theological commentary that I'm writing. So I've been reading all sorts of books, commentaries around 2 Samuel. And it's one of the most extraordinary texts to come down to us from the ancient world. Filled with wonderful stories, psychological perceptiveness, and tremendous theological depth. 2 Samuel has to do with King David. So the rise of David is covered largely in 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel is all about King David. Well, the passage that is our first reading for today is the hinge, it's the turning point of 2 Samuel. And one of the most decisive moments in the life of King David. But to understand it now, we need a little bit of background. At the beginning of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, we're told, that time of year when kings go on campaign, David was home in his palace. Now, this is already a very bad sign. So the author is saying that time of year, it meant the springtime. That's when the winter rains were over and, and armies could move again. So that time of year, when kings go on campaign, yeah, David's out on campaign, right? No, no, he's home in his palace. See, David's whole life had been the life of a warrior. He begins, you know, with the killing of Goliath, and then he becomes a a trusted commander under Saul, and then he has to flee from King Saul in this great civil war. He battles the Philistines. I mean, he's a soldier. That's what David is. He's a fighter. So how come, how come, when it's that time of year when fighters go out on campaign, he's staying home? Why wasn't he in the arena? First spiritual lesson, watch what happens, everybody, when you opt out of the spiritual warfare. When you refuse to take up your weapon and stand your post. I'm using this military language because we are an ecclesia militans, right? We're a fighting church, the church militant. We're involved in the spiritual warfare. We're involved in this active campaign to bring Christ to the world. And that means we're going to be battling. Watch what happens when it's the time for battle and you're staying home. Well, the story goes on. David, we're told, woke up late in the afternoon. Now, this was a siesta culture, like a lot of cultures around the Mediterranean you know, to Rome or Spain or Greece to this day, most people after lunch take a siesta. So that's not in itself all that surprising. But we're told that it's late in the afternoon. That means that David has been in bed for a long time. 
he's taken a very long afternoon nap. Another bad sign. Not only isn't he fighting, but he's, he's lazing around at home. What does he do now once he gets up from his nap? Well, he commences to pace around the roof of his palace, surveying his city. Well, not good from a biblical standpoint, because David is moving here into a godlike attitude. You know, surveying, what's going on? Let me see from the height of my palace roof what's going on. David, at his best, always obeyed God. Now he's acting like God. Sound familiar, fellow sinners? It's what we all do. We move from obeying God to acting like God. And when you do that, trust me, you get into trouble. And so David promptly gets into serious trouble. He, from his rooftop perch, spies the beautiful Bathsheba, who's in the process of bathing on the roof of her home. She is beautiful, but she's also married. She's married, in fact, to one of David's military officers. But, heck, he's not on campaign, he's home. He's taking long naps. He's acting like God, walking around the roof of his palace, and so he forgets all about that, and he sends for her, and he sleeps with her. And she becomes pregnant. Now, at which point, David panics a bit, because even though he's king, adultery, according to Mosaic law, was punishable by death. So even even the king here is under uh, the judgment of the Torah. So, he makes matters worse. Using all his kingly power and cunning, he summons Uriah the Hittite, that's Bathsheba's husband, who'd been out campaigning. See, the ironies are very thick here. David should be, but he's, he's fat and sassy and taking naps and walking around the roof of his palace. Uriah is being a good soldier. He's out in the battle. David sends for him. He wants, of course, to cover up his crime by making it appear as though Uriah is the father of the child. So he wants Uriah to go home and have sex with his wife. But Uriah, loyal as a Boy Scout, and it's so kind of beautifully told in the story, just frustrates David because he's such a good soldier that he refuses to go to his wife. Out of deference to his troops who are out the field, he says to the king, well, how can I go home and sleep with my wife when my troops are, are sleeping out in the field? So David gets him drunk and then practically orders him to go. But Uriah is so good that he continues to refuse. It's, it's, a beaut- it's funny almost and it's tragic. It's beautifully told because you've got these, these two people moving spiritually in opposite directions. Uriah is being a good, um, faithful Israelite. David, the king, is being a jerk. And the two of them are, are at cross purposes. So, frustrated in this, in this scheme, still worried about being caught out, David uses his kingly authority again to do something even more nefarious. He sends Uriah himself to carry a message to Joab. Joab was David's commander out in the field. Again, there's a good Israelite out fighting. Uriah carries the orders for his own death. Because the order is, send Uriah into this very difficult area and then have the troops withdraw. Leave him there. So he's exposed alone to the enemy of fire and um, he'll die. 
So with a desperately sad irony, Uriah carries the orders for his own death to Joab. And the dirty deed is carried out, and Uriah is cut down. Now, I go back here to Mel Brooks's movie, you know, where he has the, the uh, corrupt French king you know, look in the camera and say, hey, it's good to be king. Well, yeah, that's the problem here. It is good to be king. In a certain way, you get whatever you want. But David had used all his authority and power to manipulate and abuse his people and get what he wanted. He became, in one fell swoop, adulterer, conspirator, and murderer. And it's good to be king. By all accounts, he got away with it. Except everybody for one little problem. God was not pleased with what David did. How easily, even great figures of the Bible, how easily people seem to forget the omniscience and omnipresence of God. We might be able to fool all kinds of people. We might be able to manipulate lots of things to our advantage, especially if you're king, if you're powerful. Listen to me, powerful people that might be hearing this sermon. We might look good to everybody in the world, but we cannot fool God. (laughs) I mean, don't even try So, the Lord sends his prophet, Nathan, to visit David. And the prophet, with infinite cleverness, caught David out. Go to this section of uh, of 2 Samuel, one of the most beautiful, beautifully crafted uh, bits of literature that's come down to us, as I say, from the ancient world. Nathan goes to see the king. I want to talk to you about a, a case. And he tells the story of a rich man who had many livestock, many uh, cattle and sheep and so on, and a poor man who lived nearby who had only one little ewe lamb whom he had raised from its, its infancy. The lamb was like a pet to him, like a member of his family. The visitor comes to the rich man. The rich man says, I don't want to, I don't want to take the life of even one of my many uh, livestock to prepare a dinner. I'm going to take that poor man's you lamb, and prepare a supper for my guest. And so, abusing his authority, doing whatever he wants, the rich man takes the lamb. And so Nathan pretends he's bringing this case before the king for adjudication. David hears it. His anger flares against the rich man. This man deserves to die. And then Nathan devastatingly says, You are the man. Beautiful parable of exactly what David had done. David who had all the wives and concubines he could want. David who had every bit of wealth and power and richness. David the king. But here's Uriah the Hittite. And David takes his wife. See, listen everybody. Even kings fall under the authority of God. So even kings are obliged to follow the moral law. This, by the way, as I've argued before, is precisely why religion is so important in the public political conversation. Patrick Henry saw it so clearly, didn't he? He said, when God is eliminated, that's when the tyrants forge their chains. So you see it in this story. David's acting like a tyrant here. When God is forgotten, that's when the tyrants forge their chains. David can't run, he can't hide. He admits his guilt and then waits for Nathan to pronounce judgment. And this is where our first reading today commences. Here's what Nathan says to him. 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you've despised me. The divine forgiveness, and, and God does forgive David, but it doesn't mean that evil goes unpunished. To say otherwise is to move outside of a biblical ambit. There is a kind of law of karma in the Bible, whereby sin carries with it its own negative consequences. We notice the punishment has to do with David's family. Now listen, you know this. How many families have been torn apart by adultery, by precisely what David did? How much resentment, hatred, verbal abuse, tension have been caused by this particular sin? And it's true in David's case. Nathan says, the sword shall never leave your house. Read the rest of 2 Samuel. It's all about children against their father, brothers against sisters, brothers against brothers, endless strife. So it happens with this particular form of sin. David was a man after Yahweh's own heart. Beautiful description of David in the Bible. He was the sweet singer of Israel. He was the chosen king. And yet even he fell into terrible sin. Don't think, don't think you're immune. Don't think you can ever let down your moral guard. And certainly don't think that just because a sin isn't widely known by human beings, it isn't known by God and won't be punished. As I mentioned last week, you know, God is a God of grace, a God of forgiving love. That's true. But read this story and then realize what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said is true. God offers grace, but not cheap grace. And may God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Four years in the making, and it's finally here. Our new Catholicism documentary series, book, and study program are now available to order online at catholicismseries.com. Will you help me introduce this epic film series to your parish, school, family, and friends? Catholicism is an unprecedented adventure around the world and deep into the faith. Learn more at catholicismseries.com or call 1-866-928-1237. That's 1-866-928-1237.